0: I love Jenny Kane. At this very moment, I'm feeling so comfy and cozy as I'm practically getting a hug from my Jenny Kane crop cashmere cocoon cardigan. I am enjoying this sweater so much that I've been living in it all spring long. And with Mother's Day just around the corner, this is a feeling you can gift all the well-deserving moms, moms moms-to-be, and mother figures in your life by giving them the gift of Jenny Kane. Along with bringing you this episode, Jenny Kane is a California brand through and through, and their staples make getting dressed so super easy. Think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined. Jenny Kane means luxurious cashmere sweaters, iconic accessories, elevated versions of your everyday basics, plus the most incredible home essentials. For a limited time, Birthful listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code BIRTHFUL15 to get 15% off and support the show. Jenny Kane is known for their quintessential sweaters with their cotton collection providing you with the perfect everyday pieces as the days get warmer, but they also have gorgeous sundresses in a variety of silhouettes for any occasion and spectacular sandals to go along with them. Find the perfect Mother's Day gift or curate your new spring go-tos at JennyKane.com. Birthful listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code birthful15 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com, promo code BIRTHFUL15. Get yourself and the mothers in your life the gift of Jenny Kane. Pregnancy and postpartum are some of the most nutritionally demanding times of your life, which makes sense because you're basically acting as your baby's pantry while pregnant or nursing. That's why the quality of your prenatal supplements is so vitally important. Hello, mighty parent or parent-to-be. Welcome to Birthful. I'm Adriana Lozada, and we continue with our series on models and places of birth. So today I have the great, enormous, immense pleasure of speaking with Robbie Davis Floyd, who is a world-renowned medical anthropologist, international speaker, and researcher in transformational models in childbirth, midwifery, obstetrics, and reproduction, Robbie's here to walk us through the three most commonly used birth models, which she labels as technocratic, humanistic, and holistic. Now, this conversation is a great follow-up to our previous episode with Britta Bushnell on how cultural ideals shape our approach to birth, because these ideals also shape the institutional models we create And Robbie does a wonderful job of explaining what you can expect from your birth team and environment depending on the models they subscribe to, as well as how to best navigate those models. Now, in the episode, Robbie mentions that the cesarean birth rate in Brazil had reached 57% after climbing steadily, and I wanted to give you an update on that. The good news is that since we spoke, the cesarean birth rate in Brazil has leveled and even gone down to 55.5%. So it seems that all the advocacy efforts and policy changes have made a difference. However, we still need to put that into context because in the year 2000, Brazil's cesarean birth rate was 38%. So it has taken a huge effort to turn that upward trend around in Brazil. And yet it still remains one of the highest cesarean rates worldwide. As a point of reference, the rate in the U.S. has had a similar trajectory in that cesarean birth rates increased rapidly from 1996 to 2009, going from 20 percent to 33 percent respectively, and since then, the rate has plateaued, slowly decreasing to just under 32 percent, despite massive efforts to lower it over the years. And this is a trend that can be seen in other countries as well. When left unchecked, the cesarean birth rates increase very rapidly and it then takes a huge effort to bring it down and it never quite gets back to the levels where it was before it started increasing rapidly. We will be diving deeper into the reasons behind these rate increases and how they are linked to hospital complexities in a fascinating upcoming episode with Dr. Neil Shaw as part of our Models and Places of Birth series. But I thought it really important for you to know these stats as you listen to today's episode. So here we go. You're listening to Birthful, here to inform your intuition. Robbie, it is such a delight to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And I want to tell you, I'm so inspired by your work because I feel that you are out there in the trenches, sort of observing different birth cultures around the world and seeing some significant change happen in places where it would be easy to think that, you know, all all hope was lost, even though I might be being a little bit overdramatic. So before we get into the details of birth models, would you mind talking a little bit and walking us through the change that you've Seen in Brazil, sort of painting us a picture through that example?
1: Well, Brazil is a very interesting mixed bag. On the one hand, they have an ever increasing cesarean rate, which has now reached 57%. The doctors are untrammeled in their use of cesareans, even though um, the Ministry of Health and uh, all the birth activist groups are, you know, decrying that massive lower use of cesareans. The, so the contrast there in Brazil is, on the one hand, you have this highly technocratic medical system that is bound and determined to do as many cesareans as possible and to stamp out uh, home birth. And on the other hand, Brazil has the most active and populous and progressive uh, social movement for the humanization of birth in probably the Americas, really, the most organized. They have an organization in Brazil called Reuna which in portuguese which i don't speak very well is rede pelo humanização do parto e nascimento which means network for the humanization of birth and uh um, reuna was officially founded in the late 1990s uh they put on their very first conference in uh, brazil in in the state of um the city of fortaleza in the state of ceará in the year 2000, they chose that city because WHO had its landmark conference there in 1985 when they came out with their um, goal of a 15%, no higher than 15% cesarean rate for even tertiary care centers, which, of course, hardly anybody meets anymore. Just a few countries managed to do that. But they uh, they put on this conference in, in Fortaleza in November of 2000. And I was one of five international speakers invited. There was Martha Wagner and Leslie Page, a wonderful midwife from the UK, and Ina May Gaskin and me and Jose Villar, who was at the time the head of MCH for WHO. And on the first day of the conference, we were expecting around maybe 600 people. And we were in this huge auditorium and we noticed that it kept filling up and filling up and filling up until there was like standing room only. And people were sitting on the stairs and became a fire hazard. And. By the next day, we discovered that almost 2,000 people had shown up for what became, it was called the First International Congress on the Humanization of Birth. So that was an amazing start. And I'll tell you a funny story about my experience there, if you'd like to hear it. Absolutely. So I gave my keynote speech on Saturday morning, and i it was on the three paradigms of care that I talk about so much, the technocratic, humanistic, and holistic models or paradigms of birth and health care. Well, anyway, I finished the talk and got this wonderful standing ovation, and then I turn around to step down from the high platform, and there's this line of really good-looking guys in their 30s and 40s clutching armfuls of my books for me to sign, and I said, who are you guys? And they said, well, we're the good guys. We're obstetricians. We're the good guys. We're the ones who don't do the cesareans. We have really low cesarean rates, and we call ourselves the Floydettes, and we compete with each other. To see who can quote you most in our emails, and
0: <laughs> 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 that's the best set of groovy you can have. have, all doctors. Yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. But it's interesting to me how it may be because of these extremes of that cesarean rate growing and growing that created some outrage and having a lack of, you know, not so much home births and maybe not so many midwives that. The OBs sort of, do you think they just stepped into this role trying to go back to their instincts of why they became, you know, OBs in the first place?
1: Well, that's a very good question. I was immediately intrigued by these, uh, these holistic obstetricians, as they call themselves, the good guys and the ho- holistic OB, or their two labels for themselves, good guys and girls, because there are some women. And so um, I, in the subsequent years that I went to Brazil, I began interviewing them. Uh, with my colleague Mia Georges from Rice University, we're trying to figure out their motivations. What makes one doctor ignore scientific evidence in favor of abandoning episiotomy and another doctor just do episiotomies right and left? And it's really hard to get out what makes that difference. But some of them had a sort of compassion for others from childhood. Some of them read the scientific evidence and actually were swayed by it. Actually, one of them, Roxana Noble from Florianopolis in Brazil in the South, she um, read a study uh, that clearly demonstrated that episiotomy was a really bad idea, that all it did was increase perineal caring. And so she quit doing episiotomies. And um, immediately, all the other residents and her, her attending physicians um, jumped her case. They were all over her. You've got to cut. You've got to cut. If you don't cut, the perineum is going to explode. And she said, but look, I'm doing these births and the perineum isn't exploding and the women are fine. And they gave her so much grief about just stopping episiotomies that she started to wonder what else they were defending. And she started to realize that everything that she was doing was contradicting the scientific evidence in favor of normal physiologic birth. So she was swayed by the evidence. Other doctors were swayed by experience. One of them, Paolo Batistuta, went to Sweden. Uh, He got a fellowship and he, he wanted to learn about normal birth. He didn't know anything about it because he'd done 3,000 cesareans at that point in his life and, you know, very few normal births. And he watched Swedish midwives attending these beautiful normal births and vertical births. And he came back and said, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be a cool postmodern obstetrician and I'm going to do vertical births. And the first new client that came to him was a French woman who said she wanted a vertical birth. And he said, I'm cool with that. I can do that. But he'd never done one before. He'd seen them done, but he never actually done one. And so to give you a clue of how hard it is to change practice, she was walking around in labor and she was leaning over and she was, you know, squatting down and standing up. And at one point she asked him to check her and he had to get down on his hands and knees, which is a very, you know, challenging for a lot of doctors to be so low status. And he he had to get down on his hands and knees and check her from underneath. And he said, Robbie, I honestly didn't know what my fingers were feeling. I've checked thousands of women for dilation, but always standing above them. And I didn't know, I couldn't read the information in my fingertips because it was I was coming from a completely different angle. So he said, he just guessed, he said, okay, four, you're good, everything's coming along fine. Fortunately, that birth turned out really well. And he began then to do more and more births like that and to abandon all the normal procedures. Every one of these obstetricians, we've interviewed 32 of them so far, has a different story. Um, they're all fascinating stories, but each one of them has a different tipping point or catalyst or some some particular event that made them realize that what they were doing is wrong. I'll offer one more example. Ricardo Jones has become a good friend of mine. He runs a home and hospital practice in um, home birth and hospital birth practice in Porto Alegre in the very far south of Brazil near Argentina. And he was an Air Force resident and he was he was like the a first year resident. And a nurse comes running up to the room where the young residents are waiting for their you know to be called and And she said, doctor, doctor, there's a woman who's in labor. She's walked in off the street. She's about to have her baby. He's got to come quickly. So he went down there and he pushed open the door and didn't see anyone on the table. So he turned to the nurse to say, are you teasing me? Are you trying to make me make a fool out of me? And she said, no, doctor, please open the door further. And then he saw the woman squatting in the corner and he went over to her and squatted down and lifted up her skirt. And he saw that the head was crowning. And he said, senora, what are you doing? Get up, get off the floor. You know, you've got to get on the table to have this baby. And he said, she looked right through me as if I were made of glass. She was in that altered state that Michelle O'Donnell calls it, going to another planet. I call it going deep down inside, but you enter a deep delta state, you know, and she was in that state and she just could barely even perceive him. She just looked right through him and he had to catch the baby without even gloves on, which he'd never done before. So he catches the baby and he's like, "Ooh, gross!" And he hands it off to the nurse, who rushes it off to the NICU because, of course, it's contaminated because it was born on the floor. And then she bursts the placenta, and he's yelling at her, "Look at the mess you made! All the blood all over the floor, you know." And finally, she he gets her up on the stretcher and they wheel off to wheel her off to recovery. And later that afternoon, the, the birth kept bugging him all day. He kept feeling weird about it. And later that afternoon, um, the nurse came who had called him came to him and said doctor, what a good thing you were here. What would have happened if you hadn't been here? And he stopped dead in his tracks and he thought about it and it hit him. Oh my God, if I hadn't been there, she would have reached out and caught her own baby and she would have had a perfect birth. And all I did was yell at her and do my best to disturb this, this intimate innate process that she was in the middle of doing. And I'm an, idiot. He, he used the stronger word, which I won't say on the air. <laughs> he used, you know, the A word. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm an A, you know what? And he just, that was his turning point. He just got it that he had to change. And um, of course he didn't know how to change. So it was a very long process. But today, half his births are home births and half are hospital. He has a cesarean rate of around 15%. You know, it's, uh, it's been a long road for him, but it took him a long time to get the courage to do home births. But change is possible. Doctors just have to be open and willing to look at the evidence and to honor women's requests and to understand and appreciate the normal physiology of birth. Unfortunately, their education doesn't support them in that at all. So if they want to find out about it, they have to learn on their own.
0: And that... It's very interesting to me because you can, you can see how pervasive it, the, are these birth models and these paradigms are of how culture affects us and how hard it is. You know, when these doctors step out of their comfort zone and have something like this happen to them and actually look at it from w- mindfully with open eyes and realize, wait, maybe question a bit of how they are doing things because it's what they're seeing is not adding up with what they quote unquote know. and download the app to start creating your shared photo legacy. With Mother's Day coming up fast, are you looking to get your mom, grandma, or mother figure a gift that they'll actually love? You know, something that is treasured instead of dying out or collecting dust? If so, you need to know about mylifeinabook.com, which is a service that helps turn their life stories into a beautiful book that can be passed down. How amazing is that? And the process couldn't be easier. Basically, if they can use email, they can create their book. Every week, My Life in a Book will send them an email with a prompt question to get them started. And if they don't like the question, they can easily edit it or change it. We gave a My Life in a Book to a family member that always wants to document all family get-togethers through images. And let me tell you, the process of sending the gift was super simple, even letting us choose the date we wanted the gift to be sent. I'm so looking forward to discovering stories about her youth, her adventures, and the challenges she has overcome. And since My Life in a Book lets you add an image with each answer, she can now share the story that goes along with her many photos. Another great thing is that the answers can be edited at any time before the book is printed in case she wants to add anything else. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL at checkout for 10% off create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 10% off today. And I do want to talk more about the technocratic, humanistic, and holistic models that you mentioned and how they affect births. So let's do that.
1: Well, back when I was doing my first book, Birth of the American Midas Passage, I was I had read Barbara katz work. She was a decade ahead of me, and I had read her work on the medical and midwifery models. But I was looking for terms for those models that more deeply connected them to what I saw as the core value system of the American technocracy. Um, I didn't even know the word technocracy at the time. A colleague of mine named Nicole Salt brought that word to my attention. I had been calling it the technological model of birth because it's so focused around technology. But technocracy, I came to understand it and to develop my own definition of it. For me, a technocracy is a society developed around an ideology of progress through high technology and the global flow of information through high technology. And also, of course, business and making money and capitalism and all of that. So I started calling it the technocratic model of birth because it's a money-driven model, profit-oriented Um, It defines the body as a machine. Uh, If you read any obstetric textbook, it'll say, you know, the peritoneum is covered by cirrhosis and it just means, you know, the the, birth is the expulsion of the fetus from the uterus, you know, I mean, in very mechanistic terms. And so it defines the body as a machine. It separates mind from body. It focuses on the patient as an object, the gallbladder in room 212, the cesarean section in 313 not as a human being in relationship with other human beings. Um, It's all about aggressive intervention with emphasis on short-term results. So there's what I call the technological imperative. If you can do it with technology, you will do it with technology. You must do it with technology. So in that model, patience is not a virtue. You employ interventions as much as possible to get the baby out as quickly as possible. Hospitals that run entirely under this model are basically assembly lines. And you don't see that as much in the United States anymore. You see it most dramatically in developing countries that are under-resourced. And, you know, they have hospitals with 11,000 11,000 women giving birth a year. I recently read an ethnography of a hospital in Mexico where doctors actually manually stretch the cervixes of the women in labor because they have such a high volume and they've got to get the women through. So they put the women through hell. They're screaming in agonies. The doctors are like ripping their cervixes to make them, you know, to get them to 10 centimeters as quickly as possible to extract the baby as quickly as possible. All that is justified under the technocratic model because the body is seen as a machine and you're not looking at how to support or enhance normal physiology. So that's what I call the technocratic model of birth. It has 12 tenants. You can go to my website, davis-floyd.com. And you'll find the article there, The Technocratic, Humanistic, and Holistic Paradigms of Birth and healthcare. Um, the humanistic model, in contrast, defines the body as an organism. So right away, we're looking at reality because the body is, in fact, an organism. It is not a machine. Um, the metaphor of the body as machine is a convenient metaphor because it justifies all kinds of interventions with other machines. But when you define the body as an organism, you start to look at normal physiology and try to figure out what that is and try to take an evidence-based approach to birth. And m- many more American hospitals these days are humanized, much more than they used to be back in the 60s when everybody was under scopolamine and out of, out of it. People are treated, in the humanistic model, you treat the woman as a relational subject, not as an object. She's Mrs. Smith with five kids. whose husband is ill. You know, you try to get to know her personally. It's a relationship-centered model where relationships become important. Caregivers try to establish relationships with patients. Um, There's a big difference, though. Humanism is easily co-optable because you can paint the labor room nice colors. As Barbara Katz-Rothman said, you can hang a plant on an IV pole and call it humanistic, you know. (laughs) So that's what I call superficial humanism where you paint the room all nice and you have pretty covers and it's the hospital's beautiful and the food is good. Um, and people are treated kindly and the cesarean rate at one hospital I visited that was just like that in Brazil, the cesarean rate was a hundred percent, you know, so the women were treated with dignity and respect after they've had their cesarean, you know?
0: Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) So that's what I call superficial humanism. And then deep humanism is where you truly honor the deep physiology of birth and patience is a virtue you wait on the labor process to unfold. You don't aggressively intervene, and then the other extreme is the holistic model, where the body is not just an organism, but it's also, but it's more importantly an energy field in constant interaction with all other energy fields. So, in the holistic model, you talk about the oneness of mind and body, and and also of spirit. God or spirit comes into the equation in holism. Holistic healers believe that if spirit does exist, that it must be the most powerful force for healing in the universe. So why wouldn't you employ it in your, in your caregiving process? Intuition counts in holism, um, because it's a form of energy of energetic knowing. In holism, it's a, it's a place where most obstetricians, most doctors don't want to go because it's a big jump to think of the body as an energy field. The second you do that, you can understand alternative modalities like Um, homeopathy or Reiki or um, massage therapy or Ayurveda or Chinese medicine. All of these are, you know, holistic energy-based modalities. If you don't get the concept of the body's energy, they won't make any sense to you. The most important thing about understanding the body's energy is that you start to deal with the energy around the birth. And you understand that if you intervene at the level of energy, you don't have to intervene at the level of technology. So you can simply change the energy. In a birth process. A great example I like to give is of a, a midwife friend of mine who was working as a volunteer doula in a hospital in Alaska. She was sent in to attend uh, a young 17-year-old girl who was an unwed mother who was terrified and all tensed up, and she was stuck at four centimeters, and the hospital sent this doula in to, to help her, and she tried to engage the woman in conversation, and but the woman was too scared, and she was just all balled up. And so my friend Lucia just crawled on, like on the bed behind the mother and embraced her in her arms and let their energy field merge. And the mother was rocking back and forth and she was, she was moaning, Oh God. Oh God. With each contraction in this really high, tight voice. Mm -hmm. Well, in holism, if the body is energy, midwives postulate that there's an energetic connection between the throat and the cervix. So if you want the cervix to open and be loose and let the baby come, the throat must also be open and loose. So the first thing Lucia did was start rocking with her to entrain their energies to merge their energy fields. And then she began to whisper in the woman's ear as the woman would screaming, oh God, Lucia would whisper in her ear in a very low guttural voice, oh good. Oh good. And the mother began to pick that up, and she kind of melted into Lucia's arms, and she began to relax. She began to naturally lower her tone of voice. Oh, good! She began saying as contractions came. Oh, good! Oh, good! And all of a sudden, she's pushing. <laughs> you know, and yeah. Lucia had to jump down and run around and catch the baby, even though she wasn't supposed to. As a doula, what had she done in that birth? She simply changed the energy that made a massive difference in the outcome of the birth.
0: That's fantastic. That's such a great story. And also a perfect lead to the next question I wanted to ask you. Let's say that a pregnant person is soon going to be giving birth in a hospital with a traditional OB in a very technocratic environment. Is there a way to make that birthing more humanistic or holistic? What are some things that could help in that situation?
1: So, my advice to mothers, especially first time mothers, first of all, it's very important to know what you want from this birth. And it's important to know what you're afraid of and what you're not afraid of. Some women are afraid of the hospital. If you're afraid of the hospital, don't go there to give birth. Walking in the door is going to make your body tense up in fear. If you're afraid of not being in the hospital, then you need to be in the hospital. If you perceive the hospital as your safe place, the place where the, the doctors and the technology can save you and your baby if there's a problem, then that's where you need to be. So you need to know yourself in order to make the choice. You you don't choose home birth out of some, you know, oh, it sounds like it's such a lovely idea. You choose home birth because it's a, a firm belief that you have that home birth is safer for you and your baby than hospital birth. Um, and it is in many ways. Home birth gives you less iatrogenic intervention and in midwives tend not to interfere in the birth process. Um, statistics clearly show that home birth outcomes are just as good as those of low risk hospital outcomes. And so there's no added danger or risk to home birth. It's just as safe as hospital birth with its plans with a skilled midwife in attendance. But you should only do that if you're firmly committed to that ideology. And if you truly believe in your power as a birth giver, or you want to believe in your power as a birth giver, and thats it's really important to you to do it yourself, that that sense of empowerment that women get when they birth completely on their own. There's nothing like it in the world. If you want a normal vaginal birth in a hospital, you're very well advised to have a doula. I mean, a midwife and a doula. In many, some areas, nurse midwives aren't available, but generally, they're much more available than they used to be. So you want either a very humanistic obstetrician. How you find out if your obstetrician is humanistic or not is you look at his cesarean rates, especially for first-time births. If they're higher than 15 or 20%, you really don't want the guy. A lot of obstetricians have cesarean rates of 50%. If you want to schedule a cesarean, he's your guy. But if you want a normal vaginal birth in the hospital, look for someone with a relatively low cesarean rate and with a compassionate attitude, someone who'll spend time with you during your prenatal visits and not shush you out the door in five minutes without answering your questions, you know? So you're well advised to have a doula who comes to your home as soon as you go into labor. You want to establish a relationship with that doula before you go into labor meet with her several times during the pregnancy and then have her come to your house and the doula will know when it's time to go to the hospital. If you go to the hospital too soon, the classic scenario is you get to the hospital at one or two centimeters, and you think you're in labor, but you're really not. You're in what midwives call the latent phase of labor, and that can last until five or six centimeters. It can take two or three days to get past four centimeters, you know, and that's normal. Then you want to stay at home with your doula and your midwife if you have one you want to. Even drink as much as possible, as much as you want to, to not get exhausted. And labor is hard work. You need nourishment during labor. You want to be in and out of the, the tub or the shower. You want to be walking outside. And then your doula will know if you really want a hospital birth when it's time to go because your contractions will change. The nature of labor will change. And you'll when you enter the active phase of labor, which is at five or six centimeters and beyond, At that point, there's not a lot they can do to you in the hospital that will slow labor down. If you go to the hospital at one or two centimeters, they're likely to want to put you on Pitocin to speed labor up, and that produces contractions that are more painful. And so then you're going to want the epidural. If you give the epidural too early, that slows labor. Then you need more Pitocin to speed labor up again. Then the baby goes into distress because of the added stress of the Pitocin-induced contractions. And then you end up with an emergency cesarean and you say, oh, doctor, thank you for saving me and my baby, when it was the hospital interventions that caused the problem in the first place. So to avoid that and to have a normal vaginal birth in the hospital, you want to bring with you your doula. You want to have a, a nurse midwife with you, if if at all possible, and um, or if you want that. And then you want to go to the hospital when you're well into active labor, well past five centimeters. Go to the hospital then. And then you want a hospital that hopefully offers labor and water, at least the option of being in showers. You want to avoid being hooked up to the monitor continuously because the essence of a successful labor is movement. You need to be moving during labor. The monitor and the epidural hold you still. They imprison you. They tether you. And I should say that with a caveat. There are some very savvy doulas and nurses who know how if you have an epidural needle in your back, leading to a tube, you can move a few feet away from the bed. So you can actually get out of bed, even with a monitor belt on, and you can sit on a, a birthing ball and rock back and forth, rock your pelvis. You want to move your body because the more movement during labor, the more the baby descends, the easier the descent is, and the more successful the, the, the contractions are at pushing the baby down. Mm-hmm. So you want to be moving uh, as much as possible. You want to be, don't let anybody tell you not to eat or drink, smuggle food in. When you're truly, truly in active labor, you won't be hungry. If you're hungry, that means you've got some more hours to go. You want to eat to keep up your strength, right? So take the doula. Don't go to the hospital to your five or six centimeters. Go with your doula and um, make friends with the nurses. You know, be nice to them so they'll be nice to you. And, um, and, <laughs> And that's the best way to achieve a a normal vaginal birth in the hospital.
0: That's so many great tips and recommendations. and, And it does require, you know, learning about these things beforehand. I love that the first thing is know what you want and know what you fear and figure out where you feel the safest. So if we step back to those months in pregnancy in preparation to get to this point, do you have reading recommendations, viewing recommendations, other suggestions to help moms sort of get to that point where they're really believing in their power as birth givers?
1: Yes. My least favorite book for pregnancy is What to Expect When You're Expecting, mostly because they don't give you very much information. They mostly just say, ask your doctor, talk to your doctor. It's not a very empowering book. My favorite book for pregnancy has always been Sheila Kissinger's, either the complete book of pregnancy and birth or the complete guide to pregnancy and birth, the latest edition that, that there is. I love that book because it gives women so much information that's so empowering to help you make truly informed choices. And I would suggest that they watch the business of being born and orgasmic birth. That's a great one for getting you into the frame of mind for a, a normal, natural birth. Um, for people who are offended by the term orgasmic birth. The producer, Deborah Pascali Bonaro, made a, a second video called Organic Birth, which some people are, are you know, more receptive to the title. Um, but those and yes, there's a, a treasure trove of wonderful uh, videos out there on YouTube and elsewhere. Um, it's very, very empowering to watch other women go through labor and to read other women's birth stories as well.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I have heard that there seems to be in the near future, we're looking at a possible shortage or decrease in OBs in the U.S. And that that's going to create some change in terms of needing more midwives, balancing out. What is the truth in that? And what what do you see happening or, or you can estimate?
1: Well, I, okay, so the World Organization, jointly with the International Confederation of Midwives, a few years ago, issued a global call for 350,000 more midwives worldwide. What's happening in developing countries is that the traditional midwives or so-called traditional birth attendants, which is a term anthropologists don't like because we, we think it disparages their role as midwives to their communities. Um, but traditional midwives are being phased out around the world in developing countries that are trying to modernize, and they see traditional midwives as these pre-modern vestiges of the past even though many of them have done thousands of births and are extremely capable and competent practitioners, they, they carry this aura of scraggy old ladies in shawls or saris that the governments of their countries don't like and don't want to support. So they're trying to get rid of traditional midwives and replace them with skilled professional midwives. Not that traditional midwives aren't skilled, they are. But in the language of you know the health, the, the development community, um, it's all about skilled birth attendants, mostly primarily midwives who need to be trained around the world. Certainly in the U.S., we have a huge midwifery shortage. Midwives only attend about 12% max of all the births in the country, which is ridiculous. In Europe, midwives attend 80% of the births. In the countries with the lowest intervention rates and the best outcomes, like the Scandinavian countries and the Netherlands, midwives attend the vast majority of births. In New Zealand, you have a midwife at every birth. Even if it's a scheduled caesarean, there's still a midwife there beside you to hold you and, and hold your hand and support you. So there are some countries with fabulous midwifery systems, like the Netherlands and New Zealand, like Norway and Denmark, which have caesarean rates of 17% and 19% respectively. But then there are you know, lots of countries where there's a huge shortage of midwives, as there is in Canada, as there is in the U.S., as there is all over Latin America. In Brazil, they do have nurse midwives. They attend Maybe maybe 7% of the births in the whole country, you know. So, yes, there's a huge need for more midwives. Anybody who wants a marvelous profession that, um, okay, yes, it's years of training and it's a lot of hard work, but it's, midwifery is a fantastic profession and I encourage women to, to go into it, and women abs- and men.
0: Absolutely. No, That's it's. it's I, I totally hear that we need more midwives. And part of what I was asking, though, that I've been hearing about is that there's a projected – future shortage of OBs in the U.S., which sort of leaves that, is that, is there truth? Like, to me, that seems like a great opportunity to fill it with even more midwives, if that's where it's going. Yes, and that's what I,
1: that's what I was trying to say. Thank you for bringing me back to the point. Yes, Um, we do not need as many OBs as we have, at least not for birth. OBs should be attending the 15 to 20 percent of actually high-risk births that actually need a skilled specialist care like that. Midwives are skilled specialists in normal birth. OBs are skilled specialists in pathology. Well, most births are not pathological, but an obstetrician will turn almost any birth that he can into something pathological because he's trained to only perceive pathology. Midwives, on the other hand, are trained in normal. And so they recognize deviations from normal because they know normal. So they know when to call in an OB because they see that it's not normal. Whereas the OB generally sees only pathology and doesn't know how to keep birth normal because that's not his training. His training is in pathology. So honestly, OB should be doing no more than 20% of the births in any given country, and midwives should be the primary birth attendant. That's, That's how it ought to be. So a shortage of OB doesn't bother me in the least. I just hope we get more midwives. We need more midwifery programs, more funding for them, more women entering them, all of that.
0: Yes, and hopefully a, a more of a collaborative model between the OBs working together with midwives, and and then they can see less pathology and observe a little bit more normal, and have this more humanized OBs and holistic OBs like your groupies in in Brazil.
1: Absolutely, one of my dear friends, Richard Jennings, is one of the few male midwives. Did, did you know globally, one percent of midwives are male? Like in, in everywhere in the world, it's about one percent. Well, he's part of that 1%. He's the director of uh, midwifery training, the clinical director at Yale. And um, he has uh, helped organize, they call their maternity, their labor and delivery ward, they call it the Center for Physiologic Birth. And they're staffing it with midwives and they're training the OB residents right alongside neck-to-neck and shoulder-to-shoulder, hand-to-hand with the midwifery students so that the OBs are learning from the midwives as they go. So that they're internalizing what we call the midwifery model of care, which is a combination of the humanistic and the holistic models in in my language. And so, yes, OBs need to be trained with midwives. They need to respect midwives. Most obstetricians tend to think of midwives as subordinate to them because they're nurse midwives. You know, the hospital-based midwives anyway are nurse midwives. And that's not how it should be. Midwives are skilled specialists in their own right, skilled specialists in normal birth. And so they should be on a collaborative level with doctors. Doctors should consult with them. Midwives should be able to refer cases to doctors when necessary. And doctors should refer those cases back to the midwife if the situation stabilizes and the pathology goes away.
0: Absolutely. It's been an absolute delight talking to you today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. That was medical anthropologist Robbie Davis Floyd, who is a prolific writer, having authored over 80 journal articles, 24 encyclopedia articles, and also authored, co-authored, edited, or co-edited many, many books. Most recently, she is the co-author of the three-volume anthology titled The Anthropology of Obstetrics and Obstetricians, The Practice, Maintenance, and Reproduction of a Biomedical Profession. As a board member of the International Mother-Baby Childbirth Organization, Robbie helped to wordsmith the International Childbirth Initiative, 12 Steps to Safe and Respectful Mother-Baby Family Maternity Care, which is available at icichildbirth.org. To learn more about Robbie and read her articles, go to davis-floyd.com. And you can connect with us at Birthful Podcast on Instagram. In fact, if you're not driving, we would love it if you would take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to Instagram sharing your biggest takeaway from this episode. Make sure to tag at Podcasts so we can see it and amplify it. You can find the in-depth show notes and transcript of this episode at birthful.com where you can also learn more about my small birth prep classes and download your free postpartum preparation plan. Birthful is created and produced by me, Adriana Lozada, with production assistance from Asia Plotty. This episode was produced in part by LWC Studios, Paulina Velasco, Virginia Lora, and Cedric Wilson. Thank you for listening to and sharing Birthful. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and everywhere you listen, and come back for more ways to inform your intuition.